doubt. Thank you, Pastor James. Good morning, everybody. It is such a pleasure for me to be here, and I'm very grateful for the hospitality, kind words from Pastor James. It's a real pleasure for me to come and speak something to you here this morning. Uh, I am traveling with a dear friend of mine. We've been friends and involved in ministry together for 40 years. So Pastor Lance Ralston, say hi to everybody there. And uh, again, it's, we've had a lovely time the past several days. And one of the reasons why I wanted to come here this morning is I, I do unashamedly ask for your prayers for the work I do. God has given me what I think is a very unusual and for myself an unexpected work in that I have a written Bible commentary on the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, it's really my life's work. And uh, there's at least some people that find it helpful, find it useful. And a big part of the work that I do is to not only make that commentary available absolutely free on the internet and just whoever can and use it freely, uh, but we're also very active in translating that work into other languages. And one of the most precious translation projects we have is to translate it into Arabic. Uh, it's one of our most advanced uh, translation projects and uh, it's been delightful just to spend a little bit of time here in the Gulf and uh, just connect with some people who are interested in reaching people in that language group. So here's my unashamed request. I'd like to ask you if you could at some time remember to pray for my work, the work of Enduring Word, especially the work of translation. I'll tell you, just quite frankly, uh, I feel that God's blessing is really upon our work, and it's because I think a lot of people are praying. People just like you that just hear me speak on a Sunday or whatever, and I say, Hey, would you remember some time to pray for the work that God's given us to do? So I would appreciate that. All right, you didn't come here this morning to hear me talk on and on about that. If you are interested more in what I do and about it, I'll talk your ear on about it afterwards. But for now, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 22. What I have for you here this morning is a, um, a short sermon with a very long introduction. So uh, give me a little bit of time to paint the scene here for what I want to speak to you about. And without trying to go too far back, I'm not going to go all the way back for background to Genesis chapter 1, uh, but let's at least go to the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, a God the Son and the Son of God. He, he was a man who walked this earth for some 33 years, and for the last three years of his life, he had an active ministry around the region of Galilee and in the region of Judea. And of course, uh, at the end of his great ministry on this earth, he laid down his life as a sacrifice for sins, uh, as prophesied by the Hebrew scriptures, uh, by presented throughout and spoken of by Jesus all throughout his ministry. He died on a cross to really do the work of becoming the savior of the world. And we love that title from Jesus, from John chapter 4. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. However, during the years of Jesus' earthly ministry, he almost exclusively confined his ministry to what he called the lost sheep of Israel, the Jewish people who lived in the region of Galilee and Judea. He, he, he didn't even travel very far outside the bounds of that land to uh, the Jewish diaspora in other places. So he concerned himself mainly with the lost sheep of Israel. 
But, but that didn't mean that he had no heart for the people beyond that. Jesus had a tremendous heart. It's just that he entrusted that work to his followers, to the disciples, to the apostles, to those who would follow in the footsteps and come to faith in Jesus Christ through their work. He entrusted the work, what we sometimes call the Great Commission, that command that we have to make disciples of all nations. We, we understand that that work was given by Jesus to his followers before he ascended to heaven. Well, we have in the book of Acts this glorious story of the work of those early Christians. And notable among those early Christians, active in the work of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, what God came to do to save and to rescue mankind, what he came to do in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially concerning the work that Jesus did at the cross as being a sacrifice for our sins, a substitute for sinful humanity, and in the glory and power of his resurrection, one notable man given the responsibility to preach that message was a man named Saul of Tarsus, who we more familiarly know as Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle did a tremendous work, and so much of the book of Acts concerns his work. And throughout his many travels across the Mediterranean world, uh, this man, Paul, the Apostle Paul, whatever you want to call him specifically, he came to the city of Jerusalem. And he was there at the Temple Mount. These were the days when the temple in Jerusalem still stood. He was up there and through a combination of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, misunderstanding, and bitter hatred on behalf of some people who were in Jerusalem, from out of town, the Apostle Paul was mobbed on the Temple Mount. There was some confusion. People thought that the Apostle Paul had taken a Gentile friend of his into a place that was forbidden for Gentiles to go on the Temple Mount. The Apostle Paul did not do that. He would never do such a thing. But, but again, you know, they were walking together, maybe seen walking away from that direction. Anyway, it, it was a combination of, of bad events that led to a tremendous riot on the Temple Mount, so much so that the crowd was beating Paul, and probably, if they had been allowed to continue, they probably would have killed him. However, there was a Roman fortress right on the side, probably sharing an adjoining wall with the Temple Mount complex. And from the vantage point of that Roman fort, a Roman commander saw this riot down on the Temple Mount, and he commanded his soldiers to go down and to rescue Paul. That's what they did. They sent a detachment of soldiers. They went and they pulled Paul up. They dragged him up the stairs. And Paul, being a remarkable example of a preacher, sometimes what I like to think is a pure preacher, Paul is there, bloodied, bruised, disheveled, clothes torn, hair unkempt, saved by a whisker from having his life ended, beaten to death by an angry mob on the Temple Mount. They bring him up the stairs, up towards the fortress, Antonio, and Paul has a brilliant idea. Maybe I could preach to that crowd. And that's what he asked for permission to do, which is a very preacher thing to do, but it's still a crazy thing to do. I'm going to preach to the mob that just tried to kill me. Now, why would Paul do such a thing? Well, he was a preacher. But more than that, he was a man who had a profound love for his own Jewish people. Paul 
came from a rich and established Jewish heritage. And he loved his countrymen. So much so that really just a few months before this, when Paul wrote a letter to the Roman believers, he said in that letter that if it were possible, and I'm paraphrasing Paul's words, he said, if it were possible, I would be accursed. I would send myself to hell if it could somehow accomplish the salvation of my own people. Friends, that's a radical love. Paul, looking down upon that mob, he loved them. And he wanted them to find Jesus. He also looked down on that mob and he said, I used to be just like them. I used to be the one wanting to beat Christians to death. I'm the one that has the blood of believers on my hands. So he said, I'm going to preach. And Paul started preaching to them. He preached in what's called Hebrew, it's probably Aramaic, speaking to them. And the, the biblical text tells us that they were absolutely spellbound. The crowd was quiet. They hung on his every word. I think it's fascinating. The Romans probably had no idea what was Paul was saying. They couldn't speak or understand Aramaic. But they, they saw a man who had almost been beaten to death, speaking to the crowd that almost beat him to death, and holding the, and he tells the story of how he met Jesus, who he was, his background. And that crowd was with him until he spoke one specific word. Do you remember what that word was? Gentiles. He spoke it how God had called him to bring this good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, not only to the lost sheep of Israel. Because again, we remember that was Jesus' command, was it not? Make disciples of all nations. But that one word set the crowd off in a riot all over again. And I wonder if Paul thought, you know, did I really have to mention the Gentiles at that point? Everything was going so good until then. I wish I could preach that sermon all over again. And, and, and maybe wait to that, to I bring them to a more, uh, to a better, I should say, place of decision, a clearer explanation of the gospel. Paul never got to that because the crowd erupted in a riot again. That's where we come. Acts chapter 22, now verse 24. The commanding officer ordered Paul to be brought back into the barracks. He told them to interrogate Paul by beating him with a lash so that he could find out the reason the crowd was shouting at Paul in this way. Roman commander was mystified. What, why is this man the cause of so much trouble? What, why did he have a riot almost beating him to death, and then he's speaking to the crowd, and they erupt in a riot? What, what terrible thing did he say to that audience? I mean, did he insult every one of their mothers or something like that? The commander doesn't understand. So this is a day, an age. Again, this is the pre-Christian world. Friend, life is cheap. That Roman commander didn't have a tinge of conscience when he said, take him in the back, beat him with a whip until he tells us the truth. What's going on to this? So that was the whole idea. Now, continuing on here, verse 25. When they had stretched him out for the lash, he just paused right there. In other words, they're extending his body so that the, the, the lashes on his back will be even more painful, will, will break the skin more readily. When he's ready to do this, verse 25, 
when they had stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing nearby, is it legal for you to lash a man who's a Roman citizen without a proper trial? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commanding officer and reported and said, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? Now this changed everything. Because life was cheap in the pre-Christian world. But there were some people that had some semblance of what we would call human rights or civil rights. And Roman citizens were numbered among those. And you were not allowed, especially a Roman military officer, to beat a Roman citizen without due process of law. And so when the commanding officer, he became very concerned. Whoa, this man's a Roman citizen. Stop right now. You're probably wondering the same thing I would be wondering. If I was about to get beaten in such a way, and if I could get out of it by simply claiming to be a Roman citizen, why wouldn't I claim to be a Roman citizen all the time, even if I wasn't one? Well, the only answer I can give to you that is that, I mean, obviously, the punishment for a false claim to being a Roman citizen was so severe, it was rarely done. Can we say it was never done? No, of course not. But it was just rarely done. So it was taken very seriously when Paul claimed to be a Roman citizen. Verse 27. So the commanding officer came and asked Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He replied, yes. The commanding officer answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. But I was even born a citizen, Paul replied. And those who were about to interrogate him stayed away from him. You can see them backing away from Paul, can't you, in your mind? They stayed away from him, and the commanding officer was frightened when he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had tied him up. Roman, oh, I hope he doesn't report this. I hope he doesn't report how he's been treated because I could get a lot of trouble for this. And Paul's just relieved that he didn't have to be beaten in this situation. Verse 30. The next day, because the commanding officer wanted to know the true reason Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and the whole council to assemble. He then brought Paul down and had him stand before them. Now, I love teaching the Bible. And one of the things I love to tell people when I have the opportunity to teach the Bible is when you're reading especially a historical narrative like this in the Bible, it should be like a movie running in your head. Can you picture Paul right there coming before this council? And if I could speculate, just, just bear with me for a moment. I understand I'm speculating here, but I don't think it's, it's completely unwarranted speculation. I just want you to imagine what's going through the heart and mind of Paul at this moment. His passion was to see his countrymen brought to faith in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. This was a great passion of his heart. And even though God specifically had given him the job of being the apostle to the Gentiles, that ache for his countrymen to come to faith in Christ remained and burned very brightly within him. And I wonder what was going through Paul's mind. I, I imagine it to be something. I'm speculating a bit here, but bear with me. Paul says, you know, Lord, you're wonderful. Yesterday, I thought was my great opportunity to speak to that crowd that tried to kill me on the Temple Mount. And I thought that if I could speak to that crowd, 
and it could be a, a day of Pentecost number two, and maybe thousands could come. Maybe it would be the, the spark that would bring great spiritual renewal to the people and a great moving of my countrymen to trust in Jesus their Messiah. I thought it would be yesterday at the Temple Mount, but it all blew up in my face. Oh, but Lord, you're so good. This is what I imagine Paul saying. What you really wanted me to do was to speak to this council. This council, the Sanhedrin. I was one of these men. Okay, for reasons that I'm not going to go into, you can ask me about it later if you want. I, I earnestly believe that Paul was a prior member of that council of the Sanhedrin. I know these men. I sat where they sat. I can speak to them. I'll have said, Lord, this is the opportunity you wanted to give me. Thank you, Lord, for this great opportunity. Can you see that welling up in the Apostle Paul? He's just like, oh, Lord, you're so good. And th there's something about having the opportunity for a preacher to preach in those kind of circumstances. Your heart just soars. You're like, God, this is thrilling. This is frightening. All this, But this is one of the greatest preaching opportunities of my entire life. Verse 1, chapter 23. Paul looked directly at the council. I asked you, let it be a movie running in here. Can you see Paul before they looking? To, he's making eye contact with everybody in the room. Paul looked directly at the council and said, Brethren, I've lived my life with a clear conscience before God to this day. Now stop right there. Nobody look at verse 2. Eyes up here, please. I think that's a pretty mundane beginning for a sermon. You know, I, I mean, it, it's like, what was it, Cicero or something? Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. He, he's just getting warmed up here. I, I've lived with a clear conscience before God to this day. I don't think Paul meant that to be particularly controversial. I don't think he was laying down a huge theological mark. I think he was just getting warmed up as a preacher. Certainly, he hadn't even begun what he wanted to. You know what he wanted to tell them. He wanted to tell them about Jesus the Messiah, about what Jesus did at the cross, about the resurrection of Jesus, about changed lives in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wanted to get to. He's just beginning his message before this council. His heart soaring with anticipation of what God might do. Now look at verse 2. At this, the high priest, Ananias, ordered those standing near to Paul to strike him on the mouth. One sentence goes out of his mouth. Almost a pro forma beginning of a speech. He's just getting warmed up. Just taking the first steps. And after the first sentence, the high priest sniffs a bit. He punched that guy in the mouth. He can't talk like that here. And they did it. I've had interesting and even humorous interruptions to sermons over the years. Never have I been punched in the mouth after the first sentence of a sermon. That's what happened to Paul. Can you imagine the shock? The, the, whoa! Verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit there judging me according to the law and in violation of the law you order me to be struck? I'm going to speculate just a moment. And again, because it is a speculation, you can take it for what it's worth. 
I don't believe that these were carefully thought out words by the Apostle Paul. This was a reaction. How dare you? I'm just getting started. I haven't even said anything. How dare you whitewashed, well, which is a heavy thing to say. You're, you're like a tomb full of death and corruption covered over by a veneer of white paint. You look pretty on the outside, but you're full of death on the inside. I, I think Paul just, it was just an outburst. It was a reaction. He just got punched in the mouth. And as the blood runs down his chin, he, he blurts this out. Now look at verse 4. Those standing near him said, Do you dare insult God's high priest? Paul replied, I did not realize, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you must not speak evil about a ruler of your people. I was like, whoa, whoa. I, I didn't know. I'm fascinated by this. I did not know that it was the high priest. I don't think Paul's lying. But I take it that he could be saying, um, I just couldn't see that it was the high priest. Maybe so. Uh, there are people who believe that Paul had very poor eyesight, and this could be a factor. It could also be that Paul's sort of implying, I never dreamed that the high priest would act in such a way. I don't know, for whatever reason, he, he's saying, I didn't know it was the high priest. And all of this scene, you see the tension in the room? Can you feel it? Now look at verse 6. When Paul noticed that part of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he shouted out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. I'm on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, Without getting too much into it, the, the verses following are going to mention it in just a moment. The, the, there was a great division in the Jewish world, in the Sanhedrin, of these two different parties. And I'm not going to get into the, what the nature of the division, what they would kind of represent in today's world. But there was just a substantial division. And one side, the Pharisees, believed more in supernatural things like the existence of angels, like the fact that the dead would be raised again. The other side, the Sadducees, were less believing of such supernatural things as the existence of angels and the resurrection of the dead. And Paul, having been a Pharisee, instantly realized, look, th this room is turning very badly against me. I got to do something. Let me look for a natural cleavage line between the room. Sorry, I think I've just made all you guys Pharisees and all you guys Sadducees, but that's just for the point of, and he says, I'll make this cleavage line, and I'll identify with one side, and they'll defend me. And this is what happened. Look here at verse 7. When he had said this, an argument began between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angel or spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great commotion, and some experts in the law from the party of the Pharisees stood up and protested strongly. But by the way, I'll just pause there. They protested strongly. Um, given the, um, when an Englishman protests strongly, it's like, here, there, fellow, that's not fair play. When, when someone from a, a more Semitic culture protests strongly, it's loud, it's boys. I mean, this, this is quite a tumult within the council. And then it says, finally, we find nothing wrong with this man. 
What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Verse 10, when the argument became so great, the commanding officer feared that they would tear Paul to pieces. He ordered the detachment to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him into the barracks. You know, the guy that I think is most interesting is the commanding officer. He just looks at this, he just shakes his head. I don't know who this Paul guy is, but everywhere he goes, he starts a riot. And, and that's the scene. It's, now, I said this was a short sermon with a long introduction. I just finished my introduction. Let me preach a short sermon to you here now. How do you think Paul felt when he went back to the barracks? Again, I'll freely admit, I want to be clear with what the text directly says and what we speculate about. And I think I'm, but I I don't think this is a crazy speculation. You, You can evaluate it for yourself. I think Paul was utterly discouraged and felt defeated. The day before, he had the opportunity to preach to a crowd of his countrymen at the Temple Mount, and it all blew up in his face. He thought, I should have never mentioned the Gentiles. Then the next day, he gets a chance to speak to the Sanhedrin, the council. And it all blew up in his face. And he's like, why did I blurt that out when they punched me in the face? Why did it have to end like that? This was the opportunity I dreamed of for years. And it was right in my grasp. And it's gone. I don't think it's a stretch to say Paul felt like an incredible failure back at the barracks. That he had two golden opportunities and he messed them both up. So here's your sermon, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, have courage, for just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Do you see how wonderfully the Lord drew near his servant? His discouraged, failure-filled, or at least a sense of failure-filled servant. And he said, Paul, don't worry about this. First, Jesus drew near to him. I, I, I wish I knew exactly what that meant. I, I don't think it's impossible that there was some bodily presence of Jesus in the room. I, I suppose it could have been. It could have been a spiritual presence. I don't know. But in a remarkable way, because the, these are heavy words, the Lord stood near Paul. God did something remarkable and said, I am still with you. I promise you, Paul, This is, I promised all my people that I would be with you to the end of the age, and I'm with you right now. You feel like a failure. You feel like everything's blown up in your face. You wonder what the next step is. You wonder if you're going to make it out of this week alive. I am near you. I am with you. That's something I want you to understand very dearly and, and with great conviction in your life. Dear brother or sister in Jesus Christ, Jesus promised to be with you to the end of the age. 
And it's wonderful when we have a remarkable sense of his presence, but even when you do not sense his presence in a great way, his promise is still true. It was true for Paul. It's true for you. Next, look at verse 11 again. Have courage. This is one of the things that makes me think that Paul was incredibly discouraged. I don't know why Jesus would have told him to have courage unless he needed to say have courage. I will say I have a little bit of a favoring for the phrasing of verse 11 in the King James and in the New King James. Well, let me explain. In those two translations, it says, be of good cheer, which is a bad translation. Be of good cheer sounds like a Christmas greeting, doesn't it? Hello there. Cheer up there, old chap. You know, that kind of thing. No, this in the Net Bible is a much more accurate translation as other, the ESV and other ones. It, it is a, you take courage, Paul. I am offering you courage right now. Take it. I am with you. My presence is with you. My promise is true. Take courage. Here it is. And that's what Jesus Christ says to you today. I want you to just imagine in your mind that Jesus is offering you courage. Not courage in yourself. That's a depressing idea, isn't it? But courage in him. Here it is. Courage in me that I am with you. That I am the Lord of your life. That I'm the Savior of the world. That I'm the King of kings. And I am with you. Take courage as I offer it here to you. Jesus was with him. He's with you. Jesus told him to take courage. He tells you to take courage. Now look at what he says next. For just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Well, first of all, how do you think Paul would evaluate his own testimony in Jerusalem the past couple days? Pretty terrible. Pretty bad marks. But Jesus, no, I saw what you did, Jesus said. Well, don't worry, I, I saw. It's okay. I imagine Paul thinks some kind of testimony. Just know I saw it, Paul. We can feel overwhelmed with a sense of our weakness, our failure, our difficulty in living. We, we feel like I never bear the kind of fruit I should bear. I never honor God the way that I should. I find myself caught in a treadmill of, of sin and weakness on and on. And I'm not saying those things aren't true in some regard. But Jesus draws in and goes, look, I, I, I see what you're doing. I, I see whatever good is there, I see it. And then maybe the most dramatic thing that the Lord said to Paul and says to us too. No, not to us specifically, but in general, you get the point. So you must also testify in Rome. Paul, I've got more work for you to do. You are going to go to Rome, and you're going to testify of me there. Paul had never been to Rome. He said, hey, I'm going to Rome. Jesus said I'm going to Rome. I'm going to Rome. Friends, I think that's really remarkable right there. You see, Paul, if he understood at that moment, I don't know if he did. I'm sure he reflected on it later. Paul basically said, I am indestructible until I get to Rome. Jesus said, I'm going to Rome. So I'm going. 
doesn't matter how long I spend in Roman custody, doesn't matter how many trials I face, doesn't mind what, what dangers I have, doesn't matter what shipwrecks I'm, I am going to, now it's kind of funny, once he gets to Rome, all bets are off. Jesus didn't say anything about after that. But he said, you're going to go to, Paul, I have more for you to do. Do you know, those are precious words to someone who's a real child of God, someone who loves God, that God has more for us to do. Um, Occasionally, teenagers, older children can get kind of, I don't know, sulky. And if you ask them to do some chores or jobs around the house and you say, I've got more for you to do, they're not thrilled by that. Oh, more. Well, listen, we understand that's not the best kind of attitude in the world, is it? For the child of God, there's no sweeter news in the world that that God has more for us to do. And that's what God says to Paul, and I'm telling you, that's what God says to you. Look, things might be bad in your life. They may be much worse than you even know. Now, that's a thought there, isn't it? Right now, at this moment in Paul's life, there's 40 men plotting to assassinate him, and they took a vow that they would not eat or drink until he was dead. That was happening right then. Paul had no idea about it. Paul knew his situation was bad. It was worse than he even knew. And yet, the promise of Jesus was absolutely real and triumphant. Friends, this is what God has for us. This is your New Year's message, so to speak. We're still in January. I can give you a New Year's message. Number one, Jesus is with you. He stands beside you. Number two, just as we saw there in the text, it says there that he told him to have courage. You can have courage. You can take courage. Number three, God has seen what you have done for him, and it's precious to him. And number four, God has more for you to do. Confident in those things, we can walk together in what Jesus has for us and do whatever is our part in making disciples of all nations. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the greatness of your work, for how uh, the power of your working in a man centuries ago It speaks to us here today. So, Jesus, I pray that every one of us would truly have courage and that you would give us a sense of what you call us to do. We're grateful, Jesus, of all that you've done for us and that you have more for us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name.